Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. A lot of things are brewing with Russia right now, and there's a lot brewing up in the Baltic. Uh, everyone's focused on Ukraine, uh, Jim, but there are things happening up the, in the Baltic that have Sweden concerned, correct? Yeah, Sweden is uh, still not part of NATO, but more than ever in the past, they are you know, functionally part of NATO, much like France was after they quit NATO in the 1960s. And, and became more and more of an unofficial member. Uh, and the Swedes realized that they are one of the more exposed uh, nations uh, to Russian aggression. Uh, of course, the problem the Russians have, which I think a lot of the NATO countries and the Swedes are, are realizing, is that can, they cannot deploy a lot of combat-ready brigades at one time because half of the Russian troops are conscripts who serve for one year. Now, that means uh, your combat brigades uh, have, uh, how should I put it, a large percentage of conscripts, and most of them are not trained, you know, for combat operations. Um, so, you know, they may have, you know, 20 or so brigades uh, surrounding Ukraine, but not all those brigades are combat capable. Now, a lot of Ameri- a lot of Western observers, pundits, are playing that down, or aren't even aware of the situation with their the percentage of conscripts and their level of training. Uh, the Russians have also been trying to build up a reserve system, but that isn't working yet. Uh, it was their reserve system during the Cold War that made them such a formidable force that could muster in short notice, you know, 100, 170 divisions. Well, that's gone. And because the, uh, the Russian people, now they have more of a say, and uh, the, uh, despite efforts to uh, control the state media, including the Internet, which have not been wholly successful, any time a Russian conscript gets killed overseas or outside the country, and that includes Ukraine, uh, the family, you know, basically reports on the Internet, you know, oh, poor, you know, I even came back dead, you know, in a body bag and, and he wasn't in Syria and he wasn't in Libya. So where was he? Well, obviously, he was in Ukraine, where there are technically no Russian troops. That's something else that's been played down. The, uh, the, the separatists, so to speak, the rebels, I call them, in eastern Ukraine, are now largely uh, non-Ukrainian. I mean, or in other words, they're mercenaries. Uh, the, the, uh, the Russians brought in a lot of volunteer units, including some Cossacks. The Cossacks were making a comeback. They were, they were basically banned during the uh, Cold War. And uh, various nationalist groups, but these are all Russian. And the Ukrainians, and again, we follow this in strategy page on a regular basis. The Ukrainians are constantly catching uh, Russians. You know, uh, they, they know what a Russian sounds like on the radio. Uh, we've been helping them with, uh, you know, radio communications, especially uh, information, not information, electronic warfare, because the Russians have been trying out all their new stuff to try and disrupt the uh, Ukrainian communications. But the Ukrainians report, my God, there's a lot of Russians over there. And what they do is they, they come in wearing uniforms with no uh, symbols on them, but they're basically Russians. 
so technically, they're not pretending to be Ukrainian troops or you know separatist troops, um, but they're not hiding the fact that they're Russian. But so all they have to do is open their mouth and say something. Um, so all this is basically ignored or played down. But in combat, if there were to be a fight in Ukraine, it would all be very relevant because if you send any of these brigades in with uh, conscripts in them and they start getting killed, and the by the way, the, this hasn't been covered a lot. The uh, Ukrainians have been preparing for this invasion for seven years now. Since uh, 2014, they've increased their special operations forces. They've uh, organized reserves and they've had plenty of volunteers. Uh, they armed them. Uh, and they are all aware of the fact that the Russians cannot afford to lose conscripts uh, fighting in foreign war. And despite Russia saying, well, Ukraine really isn't a foreign war, you know, they're, they're really part of Russia. But see, that's another thing that gets overlooked. The Russians signed a treaty in 1994 that in return for Ukraine giving up its nukes, the ones it inherited, uh, when the Soviet Union dissolved, everybody got to keep whatever Russian you know, equipment uh, was in their territory. And two of those countries, I think it was Kazakhstan and, uh, and Ukraine, inherited lots of nukes. Uh, the Russians were basically willing to uh, guarantee in writing that they ne- would never try and take any Ukrainian ter- territory in return for the Ukrainians giving up their nukes. And of course, the United States paying for you know, dismantling them and, and, and uh, rendering them into uh, uh, power plant fuel. Um, so, you know, I, this doesn't get you know, as much attention as it should because it means the Ukrainians do not trust the Russians at all. They also understand the Russian weaknesses, which the Russians play down. They say, oh, we have 100,000, 150,000 troops freezing their butts off uh, in the relative, tro- relatively tropical winters of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, but they really cannot afford to invade. If they do, it becomes a catastrophe of, uh, of unknown proportions as far as the Russians are concerned. They don't like that kind of uncertainty. So Putin is basically playing a uh, scare game. He, he, you know, they feel they have a, a weak American president uh, this time around, as opposed to you know uh, before uh, 2020, and uh, that they can bully this guy. And, uh, you know, uh, that may or may not be true. Uh, you know, our, our president has misspoke, so to speak, several times, indicating that, uh, you know, we would let Russia grab a part of Ukraine. That's not true. Um, yeah, but now I think that NATO, uh, our NATO allies, especially the Eastern European ones, the Poles in particular, and the Baltic states, um, are basically saying, look, you cut, you, you know, hung us out to dry in 1940, in 1939. You know, the whole point of joining NATO was to ensure that that doesn't happen again. And that's the reason why the Ukrainians want to join NATO. Before 2014, a minority, 20% maybe, of Ukrainians were saying, yeah, we should join NATO. But with that, they had that 1994 treaty. Say, look, well, by treaty, you know, the Russians can't, you know, try and take our territory. After 20, uh, 2014, the percentage uh, wanting to join NATO went up to over 70%. So do the math. Austin? Yeah, you you, you wanted to talk about uh, uh, the Baltics. I was going to make a comment when Jim was discussing okay. Sweden's, Sweden's situation. Um, one of the reasons that Sweden uh, 
feels threatened is because they look at the uh, local geography and uh, Russia in order to get out of St. Petersburg and really even to, to uh, get out of uh, the, their big base, uh, their exclave at, at Kaliningrad, they have to pass through, of course, uh, the uh, eastern, eastern Baltic. And there's so many Swedish islands out there. I mean, there's the Danish island of Bornholm that everybody except the Danes and Russians and Nordics forget about, which is a big, huge piece of rock and a major NATO intelligence uh, asset, given all the uh, electronic surveillance uh, material that's on that uh, equipment that's on that island. But there's so many Swedish islands. During the Cold War, the Russians were always playing uh, submarine games and uh, Spetsnaz games uh, in the among the various islands that uh, Sweden has, and the Swedes would Swedes would catch them occasionally. Uh, uh, why? It's because they the Russians, if they were going to have to quote unquote break out in, in, in a war, they were going to come through there, and they were going to the Swedes were certain that uh, if a war broke out during the Cold War, the Cold War went hot. You'd have Russian troops on those islands, seizing those islands. Now, I'm going to leap ahead just for a second. That's why one of the major exercises that Sweden has had in the last, uh, Jim, you might correct me on this, it's now 2022. I think they first did, they did it in 2018, so three and a half years, I guess, uh, ago, was a, a, a rapid uh, defense exercise that even involved some uh, a counterattack on a on a quote unquote enemy seizure of uh, one of the islands uh, that's uh, uh, one of the, one of the major islands uh, offshore. Uh, NATO had not only observers in that, but if I remember correctly, at least two NATO nations uh, uh, participated in it. And there's always NATO uh, aircraft uh, that have been, I say, always, uh, but they've been participating openly since uh, Russia seized the Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula in uh, in February, March of of uh, of 2014. So that's the Jim's right about focusing on Sweden uh, uh, is anything but a neutral when it comes to seeing what they uh, do militarily and what they have the way they have structured uh, their uh, their defenses. Now another another comment. Jim says they behave like France after De Gaulle. Actually, what France did was withdraw, quote unquote, from the military side of NATO. It, it never withdrew from NATO, uh, but that was a fraud. I, I, I uh, in the mid 70s when I was on active duty in, in Germany. Uh, one, two, three, four different exercises um, that, that I can uh, r- recall involving uh, French troops, including it. One was a, a, a major uh, command post map exercise, but it involved two French uh, armored divisions. Well, they were mechanized in, in, infantry divisions uh, that, uh, it, yeah, were moving around on paper, but the French were play, uh, playing in it. But there were all kinds of training exercises that, uh, that maybe it might be at small levels, uh, co- company-sized uh, company size exercises. But they went on, and 
the French and at least one reforger I participated in uh, provided, uh, they provided 250 uh, 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 commandos. Uh, we were playing the bad guys, uh, the, 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 the unit I, I was in. We were structured to appear as a Soviet uh, uh, <laughs> guards armored army, even though we were just a heavily reinforced division. Uh, but our Spetsnaz capability was supplied by 250 uh, French commandos who jumped in about 36 hours before the war, uh, war game kicked off and were running uh, surveillance uh, uh, operations uh, against the quote-unquote NATO good guys of U.S. forces and uh, Bundeswehr forces. So that's, that's direct participation, but as Jim said, they were trying to hide it and, and playing, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the we're different card that the uh, French played. They knew who the enemy was. It was, it was the Russians. Same thing going on, uh, on up in the Nordic and in the Baltic area. Uh, it, we can talk about the uh, vulnerability of Latvia, Lithuania, and, and Estonia. I mean, they Stalin overran them. And, and uh, in, in 1940, as he was rebuilding the old Romanov empire, but now they're members of NATO. And they've got uh, uh, Article 5, the Three Musketeers Clause, that if you're attacked, it's supposed to be one for all and all for one. Jim's already pointed out that Ukraine doesn't benefit from that. If you like, I can talk a little bit about some thoughts that I had in, in 2012 and 2013 about Ukraine and, and, and NATO. But look at Finland. Finland is not uh, in NATO either. But we've had exercises in the last three years uh, with U.S., Swedish, Norwegian, German participation. Uh, and the Finns were supposedly neutral when they had been Finlandized by Russia. But you looked at their defenses. You look at the way that they built their reserve system uh, where and, and essentially – well, Jim, what is it? They could create an 800, 900,000 man army in 36 to 72 hours out of their reserves. I think that's that's the right out of maybe it's very similar to what the uh, Israelis uh, uh, can pull off. And then they've got highly defensible terrain along the Russian border. There's a substantial number of Finns, and it may well be over 50 percent that want to join NATO. Let's just get rid of this you know, seeming that uh, we're uh, independent and neutral because we're not. We exercise with Norwegians all the time, uh, and we exercise with the Danes all the time. And the truth is, the Danes have, and part of it is, is the ability to, is using Bornholm, but also their own f facilities on the uh, Jutland Peninsula. They basically provide the air control for a northern army group northern for the uh, northern flank of uh, nato and they've been providing that air control to the swedes and Finns for decades providing them this is what we see and then they uh, uh, the, through denmark nato information on russian uh, air activity soviet air activity russian air activities transferred to sweden uh, and finland I, I i read an article about Oh, maybe a year ago, with an interview that included an interview with a couple of Swedish pilots that were talking about doing some of this back in the 70s. And they felt, you know, well, we can talk about it. Everybody in the Swedish Air Force knows we were doing it. And uh, 
just, you know, thank you for the information. Of course, what was about was still defending Sweden, which is why, as Jim pointed out, the uh, a lot of Swedes are thinking, let's just drop the facade and and formally join NATO because you get the Article Five benefit. So, what's why this has happened? Is all this happened? Uh, not all of it. Obviously, the roots are deep, but the surfacing happens uh, after the uh, invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. And Putin outright coming and saying, you know, he's trying to recreate uh, the, the old Soviet empire, a new uh, Russian empire. And uh, they, the, the Balt nations and the, the Nordics know that, uh, you know, Finland was part of the Romanov empire, the duchy, Grand Duchy of Finland or whatever it was. They don't want to be part of a Russian, of a Russian empire. Um, I'll go ahead and make the comment about uh, Ukraine and NATO. I wrote a piece, an essay, I think it was in 2013, where I said I did not think Ukraine was ready to join NATO. Uh, you could have that, uh, you know, partnership for peace type agreement, where which we used as a route for uh, Macedonia, Albania. Uh, to uh, join NATO, they went. They went through a, with that partnership for peace process. Montenegro, uh, a, as well, uh, uh, because they they did. For one thing, is they didn't meet the military qualifications, and they didn't have the the uh, kind of organization and background to uh, function as a contributing NATO force. Uh, so there was a, a growth process, and I thought uh, in that uh, essay, I said, okay, that, that might work. But I also thought that there, I didn't see the will on the part of uh, major NATO nations, including us, uh, Germany, uh, France, Great Britain, to uh, defend Ukraine. Jim also pointed out, and that's the 1994 Budapest Agreement supposedly Ukraine had been granted by the Russians that had agreed to uh, their territorial integrity in exchange for the nukes. And it looked like it, no, no matter what Putin was saying, uh, that that was, that was a good agreement. Uh, of course, it wasn't. The, the, within uh, a year or so after I, I wrote that, uh, the, you have the Crimean invasion and... Uh, uh, the annexation of uh, Crimea and incorporating it into Putin's reviving uh, Russian Empire, uh, but that still was when I when I wrote that I was thinking, really, are we going to do this? Article is uh, Article Five going to apply to Ukraine with all of its internal problems? I don't know. Remember what's going on, and also in 2013, you still have as you still have it ongoing now, all the uh, chaos in, in Syria. And Turkey was even in 2011 talking about uh, invoking uh, Article 5 because uh, some of uh, uh, Assad's uh, uh, soldiers had fired shots, mortar rounds, and, and uh, across the border in, in uh, southern Turkey. He used, Erdogan used that as a, a way to scare the Assad's that they were suddenly going to war with the United States and, and uh, Germany and, and uh, everyone else. He, he 
he threatened threatened to do it. And there wasn't a lot of, of interest in uh, NATO and and <clears throat> defending. Uh, it's it's not that it wasn't a legitimate uh, legitimate appeal, but ma- maybe we shouldn't take on something we're not ready to take on. But now you, you see what uh, the, the way they, that Putin has uh, preyed upon them. Jim doesn't think they're going to pull the trigger. I mean, uh, the, the Russians, despite all the posturing, I don't either. As a matter of fact, I wrote that, I think, about six weeks ago. So a lot of this is, is posturing. But it could happen. It could happen, and you'd have a fait accompli. And how, how much do they get? I don't know. But I know that one thing they look at very much is that port, what, Maripol? Yeah. On the, yeah, that's it, because they want a land route to, uh, to Crimea. So, uh, Dan, I, you, you want to talk about the Baltics. It comes down to the <laughs> what's Russia's bad behavior has actually uh, hardened attitudes in Sweden and Finland about being active for their own defense and finally cooperating with who their real friends are, which is, uh, uh, which is NATO. Jim? What has stirred up the Russians? I mean, really, they they say that it's that in NATO is encroaching on them, right? But what has really got them stirred up? Uh, financial problems. Uh, remember, back in 2013, 2014, two major things happened. The price of oil, the price, world price of oil went down to from over a hundred dollars a barrel to about thirty dollars a barrel. Russia is highly dependent upon oil exports. And as well as natural gas, and uh, suddenly they had much less money. Uh, Putin uh, was, you know, basically considering how he could, uh, how should I put it, expand his uh, financial prospects. And he looked around and he realized that, well, you know, there's there's Ukraine, uh, there's uh, the Central Asian the stands which have uh, oil and natural gas. Uh, there's Azerbaijan, um, which they have the way to treat very gingerly because the Iranians also have, you know, designs on Azerbaijan. That's a whole other story. Um, and for reasons that seemed unexplicable at the time, he suddenly decided that NATO was at war with Russia. Uh, they were encroaching. And what was encroaching was he did the math and realized that if he threatened Ukraine, they would go pro-NATO. They thought that they were protected by that 94 treaty, which he didn't sign. But he, as the, as the, uh, you know, the, the uh, subsequent uh, elected leader of Russia, he was bound by, uh, and he certainly profited by. He could have had a nuclear Ukraine, which would have changed the, <coughs> the map, you know, considerably. Uh, so he had to justify all this aggression against what he called the near abroad. Now <coughs> the Swedes went and did an analysis, which they published, of what all the claims are in the short term and medium term for acquiring this new terrain. And it not only included initially parts of Ukraine, but also eventually all of Ukraine, as well as part of Poland up to the Vistula River. Uh, and the Russians didn't you know, to talk about this openly as a threat, but the, the, the Swedes could read the Russian media, and a lot of it was, you know, basically all you had to do was read Russian and you could see what the, what the, what the plan was and what the, what the claims were. And they decided, you know, this guy Putin is dangerous. They also found out that, that uh, you know, before 2014, 
the Swedes had eliminated conscription or on the, on the way of doing that and, and greatly reducing their armed forces, their, their Israeli-style you know, mobilization army. And it got to the point where in Gotland, that's, that's a major island they had that blocks you know, Russian passage through uh, the, the Baltic. Uh, they used to maintain a garrison with a couple of hundred you know, active duty troops and hundreds of uh, reservists living on, on Gotland. So if there was a war, they'd immediately have a fairly substantial armed and trained force on Gotland to at least slow the Russians down before reinforcements could reach them. Um, they have since then reinstituted conscription and discovered that uh, there's not much resistance to conscription at the moment. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the Swedish people said, oh, uh, we made a mistake. We, we trusted the Russians. You don't do that. And, uh, and all Putin had to do was, you know, follow his obligations, and he would have had become stronger and stronger. But instead, he's made himself weaker and weaker. Uh, it's costing him a lot of money to try and maintain this, uh, this uh, well, more he wants ultimately he wants a volunteer army but the army is only about a, a fifth of the size of the Soviet forces and uh, they had to cut the uh, the term of conscription um, they try to keep the conscripts out of uh, uh, you know elite combat units you know the Spetsnaz the airborne and what have you but even there they had to go back to the Cold War uh, technique where they would accept very eager and able volunteer conscripts to join these units. And that's a thing that's been going on, you know, in the, in the West for a long time. I, I, an educated fellow, I, I met a guy in basic who had just graduated from Harvard, and he was, he was going, he was volunteering for Airborne. And I said, why? He says, look, after I get out, I go to law school, I never get a chance to have any fun. Well, he didn't put it that way, but he said, it's a once in a lifetime chance to basically do something, you know, daring. Um, and there are a lot more guys like that. That's why, you know, during the, uh, the Afghan and the Iraq wars, when there was, <coughs> there was, uh, you know, complaints about, oh, you know, uh, uh, black and, you know, non-white soldiers are, are taking more of the casualties. Well, it wasn't true during Vietnam and it was much less true, uh, during, uh, the, the, uh, the wars from 2001 to where they basically, uh, calmed down at the 2014, uh, the majority of volunteers for the infantry were white guys. Again, like the Harvard grad saying, well, hey, you know, I, I, I got skills. I can get a job. Um, and, and black soldiers who qualified to volunteer, they went for technical jobs. And I spoke to a couple of them when I was, you know, uh, when we were, you know, giving talks or, you know, working soon as to speak unofficially with the Army. Austin and I did some of that. And... Um, uh, so I tested that hypothesis, and he says, yeah, he says, you know, you know, being in the infantry, no big deal. Uh, but he says, you know, they, they really give you good training. And I, I can become a, a, an expert mechanic, uh, aviation mechanic, you know, jobs maintaining airliners, pays well, uh, electronics technician and what have you. And uh, it, was, it was basically a, a new opportunity uh, for your, your average African-American, you know, a volunteer. Um, and, uh, and that's how it played out. Uh, the news, for some reason, ignored that. Uh, but you know the uh, you know the, the volunteers, uh, be they uh, you know African American or, or otherwise, uh, you know went after their own interests, and you know and the white guys were saying, hey, yeah, let's go into combat. Because the other thing that did get much publicity was the rate of combat deaths 
during the uh, after 2001 were <coughs> less well you know were less than half of what they were during Vietnam and um, and World War II and the reason for that was the units were much better trained they were much better equipped and there was much better medical care you know especially on the battlefield I think we just did another piece recently about the platinum 10 minutes during World War II we realized there was the golden hour. If you got a badly wounded soldier back to a field hospital, uh, you know, within an hour, you could probably save him. But by the uh, <coughs> by 2010, 2012, uh, we had trained uh, uh, medics to do what, what were in effect World War II level surgical procedures. We had developed uh, uh, medical uh, you know, field applications that could stop the bleeding. That, you know, when it already was severed and whatnot, this is the sort of stuff you just put on the wound and it would expand and it would, you know, uh, uh, it would literally stop, temporarily stop the bleeding, you know, in places where you couldn't get a tourniquet. And that saved a lot of lives. And then we also realized, you know, uh, the the National Guard guys who were on, you know, the, the medic on, on the medic back on uh, the uh, helicopters, uh, we, you know, we looked at the Army, looked at the statistics, they loved their statistics. And they found out that when the guy on the uh, the medevac uh, medical guy was a reservist, uh, the uh, the survival rate was sixty percent higher. So they questioned these guys, and almost all of them had been EMTs in civilian life. So they not only had the training, they had years of experience. So the army undertook a a program to basically give more training to the you know the volunteer uh, you know medics, uh, which basically added a year to their training. But they got up near the skill level of the veteran uh, EMTs uh, who had joined the National Guard. So there, there was all sorts of factors where uh, it wasn't as deadly to go join the infantry, even though it got pretty deadly in um, in Iraq because of the roadside bombs and in Afghanistan because you know you were fighting the Afghans. They consider it a national sport. You know, there, there's that anecdote which I tell, which I was told by in the 1980s by two uh, former. Officers with the uh, <coughs> with the pre uh, 1979 uh, Afghan army, they had trained in the Soviet Union, and they, of course, had gone over to the 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 rebels. And one of them was standing in the in um, out of uniform uh, in the Kabul when the Russian mechanized units were rolling by, and he was next to this guy from you know, the the hinders the the the, uh, the outback as it were a veteran you know the guys who became mujahideen and he was saying you know in, in pushto he says look at all that loot you know so they didn't fear the russians they saw them as a economic opportunity so you know we never adapted that to that kind of fighting um and so you know that's why we have the situation we have today all these things are understandable if you look at the details, that's why our, our masthead says, you know, that the news has history. We always give the background, and the background always tells a different, different story than the, the, <laughs> the first pass that uh, a journalist with no historical background, not much experience either, you know, have to make it. You know, they, you know uh, if it bleeds, it leads. So they look for whatever's bleeding and make up all sorts of reasons why, oh, woes, woes, we're doomed. Um, but that's just the you know the, the news media. That's their that's their financial model. You can't really knock it. Otherwise, you know you have no independent media at all. Um, but Russia thought you know again they played the psychological game. They realized that the longer the Ukrainians were threatened <coughs> by uh, <coughs> excuse me 
by um, uh, by Russia, uh, the more we're going to you know ask for uh, joining NATO. Now, even before 2014, the Ukrainians had started you know, with that that qualification process, which Austin described. The part, um, partnership for peace. Partnership, but, partnership wait, for I peace. Think, yeah, I think there was a wrinkle to it, though, Jim. They were going to be some sort of a special case, which I would say they were, but you know. But it changed after 2014. The Russians basically yeah. turned, you know, Ukrainians is a pro-NATO. Yeah, they were. Yeah, you know, they say, hey, look, we don't need it. it's. It's you know, we got to deal with the Russians. You know, we're protected. Don't stir the bear up. Uh, you know, he's finally tamed. He's on a leash. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't tame, and he wasn't on a leash, and he's taking his muscle off. Um, but the Russians still have inherent weaknesses. But now. Yeah, you know, they're trying to get in writing. Oh, yeah, we'll withdraw our troops who can't fight inside Ukraine uh, and can't afford to take casualties. They don't never mention that. Um, if you give us uh, in writing a guarantee that you'll never let, you know, Ukraine into NATO. Now, the United States or any other NATO member is not legally able to do that. But, you know, Putin needed something to justify all this adjective, all the expense. I mean, the. The two provinces in uh, in the Donbass, which historically were at one time Russian, uh, well, you know, were, were largely Russian. They brought in a lot of Russian workers during the Soviet period to work in the new industrial facilities, which have now been rendered useless. I mean, not by economics as well as all the fighting. Um, but uh, we reported, you know, the the incidents that uh, that uh, most of the uh, people in the uh, the Donbass. Uh, quickly grew disillusioned with the Russians. And then we got the numbers from the Russians. It was costing them billions of dollars a year to support, you know, the, the, the population in Donbass. Um, same thing in the uh, Crimea. They thought Crimea would, you know, rally to the cause. Well, no, they didn't. They had the historical problems with the Tatars. They were the original, uh, you know, uh, Ottoman, you know, occupants, uh, an ancient, you know, uh, mid, uh, Central Asian tribe. Which had basically, uh, you know, taken control of it the centuries before, and um, uh, you know, it's, it's like the tar baby. The more you hit it, the more you get stuck to it, and that's what the Russians did to themselves uh, in Ukraine. And and now they're trying to back away, uh, and and he's trying to do that without losing a lot of, you know, face, prestige, credibility with the Russian people because they are getting pretty tired of Putin and his policies and the sanctions he's brought on them. Because, you know, we report, and these are from Russian statistics, that the rate of poverty is now, it was, was before 2014, uh, Putin, to his credit, had gotten it down to under 27% of the population. And these were mostly people in the very rural areas that had never seen any you know, economic development. Um, but at those sanctions, he kept saying, oh, no, we're making a comeback. We're keeping the economy going. Yeah, he was doing it just like Stalin was with the Ukraine, with the, the Holodomor, you know, the mass uh, starvation in which he subdued the, uh, uh, the Ukrainian you know, farmers who were very productive when they were free to do their jobs. But, you know, they weren't going to do that on the orders of a damn Russian. Well, actually, he's a Georgian, but that's another story. Um, and, uh, you know, Stalin would never admit that. And uh, but uh, his. Uh, his successor was a was a uh, Ukrainian, uh, Khrushchev, and uh, he was very coy about that. I mean, it, it was considered a miracle that he survived as long as he did, you know, working for Stalin. Uh, 
But, you know, and he never openly, you know, uh, basically said, you know, yeah, we should we should treat the Ukrainians right. But, you know, uh, he basically didn't do anything to crack down uh, on Ukraine because he already had a very, how should I put it, dark uh, reputation for being. He was a he was a, a Zampolite. He was a senior uh, communist uh, deputy uh, to uh, to combat units. Um, and uh, that's why he rose in, in the uh, in the political ranks. Um, and uh, he basically did whatever he was told just to survive, which a lot of people in Russia did during the uh, Cold War. Once they were free, you know, the rules changed. Putin's trying to change the back and he's not been very successful. So he's basically playing a losing game. You know, the more he tries, the more trouble he gets into. And the ultimate trouble he gets into, if he sends troops into Ukraine, he'll find out Ukrainians are willing to fight. You know, they don't take any local, uh, you know, uh, heat from the population for dying defending Ukraine. They get praised for it. They get statues or whatever uh, in, the, in the village square. Um, but Russia, Putin, you know, stirs up a rebellion in Russia if he starts losing a lot of conscript soldiers uh, in Ukraine. Uh, that never gets reported. Uh, so, you know, Putin is a gambler who keeps losing, so he keeps doubling down. You know where that ends. Well, Jim, the, th- the danger, you go back what I said, of, of, uh, is doubling down and then like like Saddam doubling down. He finally makes a, 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 lurch, a lurch move. And the, Putin could play that. Now, I'm, Dan, understand I'm, this is a total speculation. I'm make, not making a quote-unquote prediction. But follow follow these elements in a, in a and call it a projection, is if that did happen, there really was a move. You, Putin could tout the fate accompli of whatever is occupied as a, as a success. All of these other elements that Jim raises, though, are the things that would uh, test that success. He's got to know that that those are in play. The Reason that I see this coming off now, not, not uh, in the end, the, the the threat now is it, they perceive the Biden administration is weak, and the Afghanistan debacle is is uh, is certainly part of that, and uh, he, he thinks he can get away with and is getting away with the the uh, propaganda bluster, the diplomatic bold diplomatic moves uh, and 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 the threats. And uh, he at least thinks he gets something out of that because Russians still admire tough Russian leaders, at least the image of a tough Russian leader. So. Yeah, but what, one thing Putin doesn't really understand was that Democrats, because of the, the weak, you know, uh, president after uh, uh, tw- early 2020, uh, has done more, more than just damage, you know, foreign relations, but he's trashed the American economy. Yeah, you know, right. shut down a lot of the things that made uh, United States uh, energy independent for the first time in decades, uh, lowered inflation, uh, uh, provided more jobs than, uh, you know, had ever been seen in a long time. And that just poof, poof, you know, within one year. And, you know, well, it, it, this, it, this is reported, you know, even in the pro-democratic party press, they, they try and, you know, misinterpret it. But his. His approval ratings are the lowest for any president ever. Well, this is the, to, to put it in the strategic perspective, Putin uh, sees weakness. 
you know, he's he sees weakness and he's going to try, uh, try to take advantage of it while that uh, take advantage of that weakness as long yeah, but, as it persists. But what, he, what he doesn't understand is the Democratic Party sees themselves losing power at the midterm elections uh, this year. And, uh, you know, right now the numbers are showing, you know, a, a, a total wipeout. And so the, the people who were urging, you know, his advisors, as it were, who were, you know, the Republicans say telling them what to do. Now they're telling them, look, you got to show some spine. You know, you got to you got to try and convince Putin that, you know, you can be as badass as Trump. Uh, and, and he may not understand your motivation, but you definitely have it. Well, we've we've got what two two heavy brigades on alert now. I think it's, it was eighty five hundred troops. Looks like it's about ten thousand. But you know, all right, close close to ten. Yeah, but but but, but, but alert doesn't mean much. I mean, that, uh, putting troops I, on I alert is always in a PR gesture. I realize. What's important I re- is the the Ukrainians have organized and trained and are equipped basically to defend their country. Uh, and, 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 the, the other thing is, is that the, that with, as this Poland, I'm going to step back for, uh, for just a second. Poland really has an aggressive uh, modernization program for its its army, and that's going to come to fruition in two or three years. I mean, you'll you're going to see the difference with uh, at least two, uh, and slowly building up to five heavy divisions. I mean, heavy divisions along the. Uh, line of the uh, of uh, the U.S. Army heavy divisions with uh, uh, highly upgraded Abrams. So uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's not going to be a Polish pushover. Not that it isn't now, but suddenly that Ukraine would be backed by a uh, a NATO member that's right on its border with a a, a credible uh, ground force. Uh, anyway, just uh, he's got to see that. He's got to see that coming. But it's something else you have to understand. And he must see this: that Ukraine during the Soviet period was basically one of the centers of defense, uh, innovation, yeah. Yeah. development, and, and construction. And they basically had the, the, the majority of the uh, you know the abandoned, as it were, no longer no longer uh, crews for armored vehicles. Now, what the what the Ukrainians did was they turned that into an opportunity. They basically uh, upgraded them. They offered them at, 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 at cheap prices. Uh, they Like the Chinese, they would sell to anybody. If you can pay, we can ship. And um, uh, and when the Russians you know, threatened the Ukraine, they basically started doing that for themselves. And we've covered that in strategy page, you know, all sorts of weapons that they have, they have developed. Their troops are well-armed, not with the same you know, weapons that the Russians have, but remember, as the Israelis pointed out during the, the earliest Arab-Israeli wars where the, where the Arabs often had superior equipment um, uh, and the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Israelis pointed out, it's not the, 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 the quality of the weapons, it's the you know, tenacity and determination of the, the people handling them. In fact, in later Arab-Israeli wars where the Israelis had superior weapons, and somebody pointed out, well, you've got better weapons now. I says, yeah, but we could switch weapons with our enemies. We still defeat them. We take more losses, but they would lose. We have more incentives. So the Ukrainians are like the Israelis. They are faced with, you know, the uh, extermination as a nation. And they lost that for several hundred years, you know, when the Muscovites came down and, and decided Ukraine 
with its fertile farmlands and what have you, uh, should be, should belong to Russia. They tried to get out. They they temporarily got out when the uh, when the uh, when the uh, 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 revolutionaries uh, in Russia in 2017, 2016, they made peace with the Germans, and uh, there was a, there was a a a Republic of Ukraine for a short while. Well, that didn't last. Once the war ended, uh, you know, the, the Reds came back in and that was the end of that. But the Ukrainians never forgot that. They realized it was possible. Under the right circumstances, we can be independent and we can stay independent. And you look at what the Poles have done with NATO uh, and with the Baltic states. The Baltic states have adapted very well to the situation they're in. They, they well, five or six years ago, they started uh, issuing pamphlets to every, every family in the country detailing the techniques that proven techniques to handle the invaders or, or occupying Russians. And a lot of families, you know, they, they don't, there's not anybody alive, but they have a grandparent or, you know, some ancestor who passed down the oral tradition of how terrible these Russians are. Something else people don't realize, that a large proportion in some of these Baltic states were ethnic Russians. After the um, after the uh, the uh, basically the liberation of uh, of the Baltic states, and at first the uh, the Balts uh, the Baltic states uh, you know the, the ethnic locals they were, they couldn't trust the Russians, but eventually they realized <laughs> once, once the Russians learned to speak the local the local language fluently and you could talk to them they didn't want to be ruled by Russia, they they they'd seen what happens in the West, they basically enjoyed the the uh, the benefits of living in a in a democratic you know Lithuania or whatever, and uh, they they're willing to fight to keep it. So the Russians lost that. The Russians deluded themselves into thinking wherever there are ethnic Russians, there are there are Russian patriots. Well, that's not true. You give them a taste of a good life, and they become locals. Well, and, one of the, one of the other things too, though, is that we sit and talk uh, about our our vulnerabilities or the Kaliningrad. Which uh, is the exclave, you know, formerly Königsberg, uh, in Prussia, but it's it's part of Russia. It was you know, guaranteed after the end of the Cold War. That's also something uh, that uh, Russia could lose uh, if if they really did ignite a war uh, in Eastern Europe. I'm not sure who would absorb it, uh, Lithuania, Poland, or, or whatever. But uh, Moscow would lose it. It could lose it. And I know it's it's fortified. You've got all kinds of forces in there, but they're isolated. And, uh, you know, yeah, you're going to make an armored thrust through Belarus uh, to relieve Kaliningrad. Maybe not. Not if the uh, U.S. Air Force is back in there. They're going to have a lot of uh, destroyed uh, Russian armored vehicles uh, littering up uh, Belarus. So I just pointed out it's it's down. It's well, just a game. I just came up with a war game scenario. That's all. Well, we've covered yeah. we've covered we've covered the clinic grad several times. Yeah, no, and that's, I know. And that's an, and that's another problem area for the uh, the Russians, because the people in Kaliningrad they realize that they're living in the midst of affluence, uh, you know, of of uh, basically uh, less less much less corrupt government. Um, and I think if the if the Russians you know took a beating, you know, PR beating as it were, with their failed attempt to scare the Ukrainians into surrendering again. Uh, the people in Kaliningrad, you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, Poland or Lithuania invading them. They really are less interested they can in do it themselves. In, That's good. Yeah. They, they say, you know, self-liberate. It was like the old Russian joke 
you know, towards the end, the, and it was very popular in the uh, towards the end of the uh, Cold War, where the uh, the the senior Soviet executive wants to show off to his grandmother, uh, who grew up, you know, in the through the Great War and what have you. Uh, all his all his uh, goodies he'd gotten you. Know, he's got Western cars. He's got the uh, Dashers. He's got summer homes. He's got several apartments downtown. He says, "Isn't it wonderful, mother? What I've been able to do as a as a Soviet official?" And she looks at him and says, "But but Yuri, what if the Reds come back?" <laughs> so, <laughs> nobody well, wants the Reds to come back, including a lot of the Reds. Right. Well, that's a good place to end. Uh, we'll continue to watch it and uh, talk about it again. I'm sure. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.